pray. Father, as we come to a difficult passage in this epistle that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we ask that you would grant us your spirit for understanding, that you guide us into all truth, and that you give us grace to know how to apply and work these things out in our midst. Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. This passage, a passage about church discipline, is tremendously difficult for us today. There's two main reasons for this difficulty. The first is that for modern ears, the practice of discipline just seems preposterous. It violates the American canon of Scripture. The American canon of Scripture, the most well-known verse inside of our culture from the Bible, is judge not lest ye be judged. It's even often frequently said in the old KJV version of it. And so if this man is not harming someone else, and this is an action between two consenting adults, what business is yours what he does? That's the cultural habitat in which we live, where it's seen to be a private matter that concerns no one else, and no institutional organization, and especially the church, should not be speaking into these issues. It's difficult. But it's also difficult for a second reason, because for all of us, the practice of church discipline delights no one, and that is especially the officers of the church who have to carry this out. When cases like the one in front of us arise, it's hard on everyone. No one is exempted. There are tensions. There are accusations. There are sins. There is a mess. There are lawsuits that are threatened. Being involved in church discipline over the years, it's never pretty, it is always a mess, it's extremely arduous and difficult. Church discipline is a difficult and demanding mess, but yet at the same time, it's an edifying and essential practice that the reformers at the headwaters of our tradition in the church identified that there were marks of the church, and one of those marks of the church was the exercise of godly discipline in the right way. And here in 1 Corinthians 5, we learn about this discipline, and we learn what good discipline looks like, and we can also identify what bad discipline looks like. But before we go any further, before you tune out and say this is just preposterous and ridiculous, hear these two essential qualifications for what we are talking about this morning. Is first, is, first one is this, is that discipline addresses persistent and prevailing sin that someone refuses to change. This is a professing Christian who is living in persistent and prevailing sin and sees nothing wrong with it. In verse 1, we learn that a man has his father's wife, and that verb there for has means possesses and is living with. And so this is a decided trajectory of life that he has committed himself to. And so the standards are well known that this was outside the bounds of Christian morality. Paul had written, we learn in verse 9 to them, about sexual immorality, and yet the man continues. And this is who receives the address of discipline, that it's not a harsh address, that it doesn't just begin with cut him out, it begins with a gracious approach, and there's a building process that we see. But then, ultimately, he has to be confronted 
that because of his lack of change, that he's accountable to God and he's accountable to the church. And the development, the type of sins that can bring one under the discipline of the church, these are not small offenses. That actually Paul enumerates the offenses for us in verse 11. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is a professing Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. The interesting thing about this list is it actually comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Over several chapters, Deuteronomy addresses sins that are expansions of the Ten Commandments, the basic values and norms of the Christian life. And so those norms are then applied, and the people who were to be cut off were those who broke these exact same norms that God has given to the church. And so they were known levels of accountability and obedience. They were made known to the church, and yet this man is living in clear offense to them, and the church doesn't seem concerned about it either. This is the first qualification that we have to know is that they're big, persistent, habitual violations that bring about a context of church discipline. Now, the second, and very importantly, is that discipline is an internal church activity. If there's anything that the American church needs to hear today in its public life is that discipline is an internal church activity. That God has not given us permission, that he doesn't give us a calling, that he doesn't send us into the world to be the moral police. We are not sent in order to discipline the culture around us. We are sent to preach the gospel, to proclaim Christ crucified, to show the beauty of lives that are transformed by that grace. But look what Paul says. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so then some people misunderstood that, so he had to clarify. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He was saying, look, I wasn't telling you not to associate with non-Christians who share in those practices. In chapter 6, he's going to say, such were some of you and such were some of us. And guess what? We would still be that way if the grace of God had not intervened and interrupted and disrupted our lives and called us into fellowship with his son. And so we're not being called here to discipline the world. We're called to hold one another accountable inside of the Christian household of faith, that our profession of faith has integrity, that we're keeping in step with the Spirit's work, that what God proclaims about us, that we have been set apart by the, by the grace of God for holiness, that we are, are walking in that in a general trajectory and way. And it's with those two qualifications that we can then begin to work our way inside of what's going on here. And the first important question for us to ask is what is the church to do with the problem of persistent and prevailing sin? Because unfortunately, it does happen. And there's one thing that Paul addresses the church on. That after gracious appeals, we are to remove the offender for the sake of his or her redemption. That is the one thing the church is to do when there is persistent and prevailing flagrant sin in its midst. 
is remove the offender for the sake of their redemption. Now, if you look at the passage, the bookends of it, in verse 2 and in verse 13, Paul makes himself clear. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 22, purge the evil person from among you. Now, this was, again, this was not something haphazard. It wasn't just a standard was laid down suddenly and the man was caught unaware. There had been an appeal process in which Paul had already written to the church. But he says, now the man has hardened himself and it's significant that you must remove him. That he must be taken out of the context of the church. But what's essential for us to understand about this removal is that this is not retribution for the man's behavior. That would be to misunderstand the heart of Christian fellowship. That the Christian fellowship doesn't go around punishing people for misbehavior and bad deeds. But rather, the man is removed from fellowship in order that he might repent. That he might be brought to his senses. Look what Paul says in verses 3 through 5. When you arrive in verse 5, he says, you are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now many people hear the word flesh there and think they're talking about the destruction of the man's body. But the flesh refers to the sinful nature. And so the church, when it does have to remove someone from its fellowship, does so that their sinful nature may be destroyed. That is, that out in the world they would come to the end of themselves, like the prodigal son in the far country, and that they recognize the wrong of their ways and that be brought to repentance. And that's why he then says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's referring to the Christian there with the word spirit. And so he's turned over out into the world to come to the end of himself, to see that life and happiness and godliness only happens in Christ. And he'll hopefully come back. And one of the remarkable things about the Corinthian story is when we get to the second epistle in chapter 2, we find that it worked. There's a tremendous cynicism among us, typically, when it comes to church discipline. And we think, no, well, this would never work. Why would anyone ever respond? But in chapter 2, we find there that it worked. That the man was restored to the fellowship, that they were to forgive him, that he had repented and turned and confessed his sins, and he was reconciled to the body. And we have to understand that this is the point in the heart of church discipline. It's never about preserving someone's power. It's not about abusing position. Now, there are many bad examples of this. When I was a church planner in Washington, D.C., I had a young couple join the church, but they came before taking vows, and they said, we've got several questions for you. And these are typically always fascinating conversations as a pastor. Because you learn all kinds of things that have happened to people when they come with their questions. And they came asking specific questions about church discipline. And so finally, after several questions about church discipline and how it worked in our church context, I said, what happened? And they said, well, we were not the subjects of discipline. But in our church, you signed a charter and you signed a covenant and if you then skipped evening worship services, we already went on Sunday morning, but if you had a habit of skipping evening worship services and missed two a month, then you were excommunicated from the church. We just want to know what you think about that. The funny thing is that this was well known 
And uh, a group of those people who had been excommunicated from the church would actually gather on Sunday evenings at a local pub and, uh, and share their war stories. <laughs> and friends, church discipline has been abused, can be abused, is going to be abused. One of the wonderful things about being a Presbyterian that I tell people is that we have this monstrous thing called the Book of Church Order, okay? And it allows us to do church with a gigantic safety net underneath us because it regulates the discipline process. And it keeps it safe for you, it keeps it safe for us, it keeps it all in good order. And friends, just because people can abuse things doesn't mean that we don't use them. That church discipline is a godly means that God gives to us, and no matter how difficult and demanding and hard and messy as it can get, it is for the good of the church. And it deals with the, with the realities of sin in our world. If this is what we're to do with the persistent problem of prevailing sin, the next thing for us is to understand why. Why was it so important to the apostle, and why is it obviously important to God? We need to understand why we are to be concerned about sin in the church. And there are four thoughts here that Paul develops for us. First, in verse 1, we see that sin compromises our public witness. There was a scandal in Corinth. Corinth was an extremely sexually promiscuous city. We know this simply from ancient records. It was very free. And suddenly, inside their church, there was something that even the pagans considered to be abominable. And so the church had dirtied its own name in the front of this sexually profligate city, Paul says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The word sexual, sexual immorality can refer to a wide host of sins. It refers to any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage and all the aberrations and twists and turns that can happen inside of sexuality. And so Paul is addressing that. And he's saying, you've made disrepute upon the name of Jesus, and now it has compromised your public witness because the pagans are looking at you and saying, oh, gross. Who would want to be with them? What's going on there? And friends, that's what happens with flagrant public sin that goes unrepented of inside of the household of faith. It brings disrepute upon the community itself, but mostly upon the grace of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Because we're not talking about small things. We're talking about big, flagrant, public violations. And so it's important for us to recognize that is what we are protecting. In church discipline, we are protecting the public witness of the church. Now the second thing here, though, that we need to understand about why we, why we are to be concerned about sin, is that sin springs from bad doctrine. That sin comes out of a fountain that is already polluted. In verse 2, Paul lays the charge, and he says, and you are arrogant. Despite this behavior that's going on that even the pagans don't like, you're arrogant about it. He says, ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, this is related to the practice of the gospel that was going on in Corinth. 
Remember, as we've discussed over the past weeks, working through chapters 1 through 4, is that the Corinthians had a syncretized version of the gospel. That is, they had taken the preaching of Paul and merged it with some philosophical notions from Greco-Roman culture, and they end up melding these together. And the Corinthians had several slogans that Paul has to address. I want you to look ahead with me into chapter 6, verse 12, and you find one of these slogans. All things are lawful for me. This is what the Corinthian teachers of wisdom were saying, that all things are lawful for me. Because what we know about Greco-Roman philosophy of that day is that people could say that the body and the spirit really have nothing to do with one another. And so if you have wisdom from God, you're really the master over everything. And what you do in the body does not impact your spirituality. This is a version of early Gnosticism that was happening here in Corinth. And so they were saying, all things are lawful for me. It doesn't matter. I can take my father's wife. There are no consequences. Sexual immorality does not apply to me. I can be a thief and a swindler. I can be a drunkard. I can do all those things because none of those actions taken in the body have an impact upon my relation to God. That's what was being said. And this is why Paul has to exercise discipline because he needs to protect the purity of doctrine in the church. That this was not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel of our Lord Jesus announces that God has come to save sinners. And he comes to save sinners so thoroughly that first he announces a verdict upon us and says that our sins will not condemn us despite us deserving that condemnation. But then he frees us from the condemnation of being held by our sins and being kept in their bondage. And progressively we are to experience that liberation. And what was happening is that doctrine was being taught that confuted that. That said, no, it doesn't matter. And you can just stay like that and be wise and be in Christ. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. And in my experience of working with church discipline cases, if you were to ask what the slogan is for most people when they find themselves compromised, they will say something like this. Well, Chuck, all sin is sin. You sin. I've seen you sin. You talk about your sins from the pulpit sometimes. All of us sin. So why would you now come down on me? And this is often the argument that is used when somebody desires to justify a certain behavior or practice that goes outside of God's covenantal standards. All sin is sin. And of course, the response is that, yes, God hates all sin, but there are degrees of sin. And there are certain sins that are done that are not as severe and dangerous as others. And they don't have the consequences. And yes, we're not baptizing or justifying any sin in saying that. All sin is sin, but then there are degrees of sin. And when there is sin that violates those ten basic standards, when we are failing to love God and we are failing to love our neighbor and we're taking advantage of people, whether that is sexually or financially or in whatever way or with angry outburst and violence, God calls us to act as a community to protect the community's profession of faith. And that typically those sins are springing from bad doctrine. And we must protect the purity of the gospel. Now the third piece to this 
is that sin possesses a contagious, corrupting power. If you follow with me in verse 6, he says once again, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's very straightforward what he's saying. He says, when these sins are accommodated, when certain behaviors and practices are allowed to exist inside the Christian community that professes faith in our Lord Jesus, that that sin can then become a disease and it can become contagious. He uses the example of leaven and unleavened bread, which is an important metaphor and analogy for us to understand. Leaven is not exactly yeast, but works something like it. In the ancient world, when bread was prepared, a little piece of dough would be held out until the next week's cooking of the bread. That piece of dough would begin to ferment, and then it would be added into the next week's batch of dough, and then it would ferment and cause the other dough to ferment, and then it would rise in the heat, and then another piece of dough would be pulled out. This was simply how the baking of bread took place. But it was also acknowledged that the leaven could carry disease and sickness. And so once a year, they would actually cleanse their house of leaven. But Paul says, no, that this sinful accommodation, allowing this person to arrogantly boast and say that they're wise and that they're in Christ and walking with God while they're flagrantly violating God's standards, that it's dangerous and it can can pollute the entire congregation. And that can't be allowed And this is because sin possesses this contagious, corrupting power. The final thing about this that we need to understand is that persistent and prevailing sin contradicts the grace given us in Jesus Christ. And this is perhaps the greatest offense of what was taking place in Corinth is that it contradicts the grace of God that has become ours through Jesus Christ Follow what Paul argues in verses 7 and 8. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. can be a hard argument to follow. But remember the metaphor and the analogy of the Passover meal that the Jews shared on the night of Nisan 13-14 that the Passover lamb would be sacrificed, and then that there was a ritual that on that night, leavened bread was cleansed from the house, and they would start over in their dough-making process, and it would all be unleavened. And so what Paul is arguing here is that Christ, the true and real Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and he has bought a people for God, Remember what Paul has argued, that Christ is our wisdom, Christ is our righteousness, Christ is our sanctification, Christ is our redemption, that He is our right standing in front of God, and He's our only one and true hope, that we don't rely upon our good deeds or what we do for God. We rely upon what Christ has done for us. He is the Passover lamb. But now, we are not that old leavened bread, he says, of malice and evil. But we've been set apart for something now new, that we are of sincerity and truth, that we are this leavened bread, that God has done something to us in sending the Spirit into our hearts, not where we no longer sin, but we now have the capacity to struggle against sin. And what was happening in the Corinthian community is they were not struggling against sin, but baptizing it and agreeing with it and accommodating it. 
And Paul is arguing that that's inconsistent with who God has made us to be in Christ. Follow again what he says at the end of verse, uh, at the end of verse 7, or in the middle. It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. This is who you are. Be who you are. Don't contradict that. Walk and keep in step with it. Be who you are in Christ is the argument. My sons, when they were little, were accustomed to a certain conversation that we would have when they would misbehave. They were like most young boys, and when I would ask them, are you a big boy, they would poke out their chest and answer most defiantly, yes, I'm a big boy. And they would forget that they had just laid the trap for themselves at that point, and I would say, now do big boys do X, Y, and Z? They would think about it. Probably not. And then I would use one of their heroes. Would Daddy, no, uh, <laughs> would Mr. Charlie do X, Y, and Z? Is Mr. Charlie a big boy? Say, yes, Mr. Charlie's a big boy. And no, Mr. Charlie probably wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And then we would take it the next logical step was, if you're a big boy, I want you to be a big boy. And let's put behind the childish ways. You don't need to live that way because you are a big boy. Friends, this is what Paul is saying to us. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You are no longer leavened bread of malice and evil. But you are now unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That you've been set apart by God through his grace, given right standing with him. And you are now consecrated to him to serve him. Remember how he opens the letter, that we are called to be saints, holy together, that God has placed this calling upon our lives. He has announced that we are his saints, his holy ones, and now we are to keep in step with that reality, to pursue it as we struggle against sin. But what is not acceptable, what is the great contradiction, is when we simply accommodate sin and we say it's okay. That is what cannot live inside of the Christian community. That is why the church exercises discipline. is to protect the purity of the grace of God. To protect sound teaching. To protect the community's witness in the city and in the towns in which it lives. Friends, it's for our good. And yes, difficult and demanding as it is. It is to lead us into sincerity and truth, to be a gentle guide that God is willing to speak a no to us, to speak a larger yes when the church has to bring someone into discipline. And remember the point. It's not retribution. It's always redemption. And we want to protect the purity and the goodness of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, in this difficult topic, as we talk about what it means to live together as a household and community of faith, we ask that you give us help. We understand our weaknesses. We know our proclivities. We know that we too sin and that we are not above doing anything. But Lord, by your grace, we can walk as unleavened bread, walking in sincerity and truth. And so help us to do so. Grant us strength in the midst of our weakness. And would we know what it is to live as a loving community that will even speak a no 
that a larger yes can be spoken in repentance. And so, Lord, may the reality of grace pervade our church as we live together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.